Easters. Hello, you're listening to Copyright Waffle, the podcast that brings you a nice cup of copyright enlightenment with a slice of cake. My name's Chris Morrison. And my name's Jane Secker. We're a couple of self-confessed copyright geeks and we run the website copyrightliteracy.org. We're on a mission to make learning about copyright fun, engaging and empowering. And we're your hosts for Copyright Waffle, an archive of amazing chats with copyright experts and interesting people whose lives have been touched by copyright. So we're very pleased to be joined by our guest today, who is Emily Drabinsky, who we saw keynote the Lilac Conference last year. Emily is an academic librarian, author, teacher and president-elect of the American Library Association. She's critical pedagogy librarian at the Graduate Centre, City University of New York. She publishes and presents widely on topics related to knowledge organisation, information literacy and critical perspectives in librarianship. So should we see if we can get Emily on a call now? Yeah, why not? Hello, hi, morning. Hi, I'm so glad to be chatting with you again. Hi. Yeah, it's great. So where in the world do we find you today? Today I'm in Chicago, Illinois, uh, going to the meeting of the American Library Association. Excellent. Brilliant. It's been a while since we spoke to you. So it was last year in 2022, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Um, And now we're talking to you and it's April 2023. So you're in full swing now as president of the ALA. No, I'm still president-elect. I'll take office at the end of June. So uh, all right, okay. Yeah. So you're 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 winding up to that. Building up to that. <laughs> it's Excellent. a lead up, but it gives me time to chat with as many librarians as I can, which is what I've been doing. Oh, that's really cool. Which is probably one of the best things you can possibly do, I, I would say. The only way to speak credibly about libraries is to go to a bunch of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for talking to us. It was it was a brilliant conversation. We know that you're not primarily a copyright person, but the insights that you had about your work in critical librarianship and critical pedagogy mm. and all the things you've been doing to look at how power impacts on libraries and the world, it, it gave us a really good opportunity, didn't it, to think about how you know, what we do mm. and how there are sort of common themes that run across Absolutely, all those yeah. areas. Yeah, yeah, really. It was really great to catch up. And it actually feels like I can't quite believe it was a year ago that you were at the keynote in the Lilac conference. We're going to Lilac next week. So, yeah. I know. I just saw it and I, I wish I could be there again this year. It was one of my best times in 2022. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, it was it was it was fantastic. Yeah. So we don't want to spoil too much for people that are about to listen to the rest of the podcast. But we spoke about your journey into librarianship we talked about risk reward um, and benefits we talked about how you're kind of bringing together and collectivizing to address power imbalances and how you build consensus and build common cause between different communities yeah it it was really inspiring to talk to you but there was a there is a but there (laughs) There was so we've sent you the audio of the interview already, but there was a bit that we had at the end which we didn't. So we're just going to play you a brief bit of if you remember back to the conversation we had. One thing we have done though, we have written some songs about some of our guests uh, in the past. So if there was going to be a song to encapsulate Emily Drabinsky, yeah, what kind of style are we talking about? Big guitars, yeah, big guitars, real loud, yeah, stadium music. Okay. Everybody on their feet, you know. Yeah. I like a like I was listening to like an um, anthem, a rock anthem. Like my my current soundtrack is supplied by ACDC, like okay. big like 
hard rock. Yeah. Yeah. He can do that. That sounds good. I think you, you haven't done one like that yet. Have I you? haven't. No, I've got I've got a, I've got Gibson SG. You know. Mm. Mm. So, do you guys watch American baseball? No. Why would you watch American baseball? No. no. We have seen it. Cricket. We're aware of it. Cricket. When they come, we usually early. have the cricket on, don't we? I don't know. I don't watch <laughs> No, I'm only joking. We don't. But it has this um. Every every batter has walk up song, so it's like oh, right, fifteen yeah. seconds of music that like jazzes you up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll see what I can do. Can't, see I mean, what just... you can do. <laughs> so there we go. Uh, uh, a walk on song, fifteen seconds of we music that's, that's jazzes you up. So uh, we've got something here. <laughs> I don't know if um, this is going to fulfil all of those. Now things, it's got guitars, it's got a stadium anthem. Well, we'll see, and it's got a little video as well that goes with it. Of course, you have the full power of veto over. Or anything that you see here, but we think this might <laughs> this might be something that could be of benefit to you, particularly as you're now going to be stepping out into the world and talking to more and more people. Have a listen to this and see what you think. Let's go. You fulfilled the brief. Have we got the job? <laughs> exceeds expectations. <laughs> you were rocking. The yeah, yeah, yeahs are just like that captures it. It's perfect. <laughs> Thank you. This is our gift to you. Is, uh, if you, if you want to use it as your walk-on music, or yeah. if you just want to put it in a box, uh, it's entirely <laughs> up to you. It's wonderful, but, and it was just the lift I needed this morning. Thank you so much. Feel free to do with what it you what, what, what we what you will. Yeah. Thank you so much, you guys. I can't wait to share it and uh, memorize it. You guys yeah. are the best. Thank All you. Right. Lovely. Okay. Thanks, Emily. We'll yeah, catch we'll up cheers. with you soon. Yeah. Yeah. Have a Bye. great day. Bye. Bye. Now back to Emily and June 22. 
So we saw you give your keynote at the Lilac Conference, which was excellent, and it gave us a lot to think about, didn't it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, but what we wanted to start with, if we could, was, well, we normally ask people about their copyright history, what it is that got them involved in copyright. And we wondered whether asking you about your library history was the, the place to start, what brought you into the world of libraries, but then also how you first came across copyright issues, because you are as you you've said a, a you know a rank and file librarian for many years and now you're you're a leader in the world of libraries so you must have had a number of experiences with with copyright but also with libraries and how the whole library world works yeah i mean i started in libraries i was a trainee at the new york public library which was a program where they paid for part of your library school and you did a little bit of everything in the library uh, my cohort and I were photographed for the brochure for the trainee program. So I guess you could say I got my start as sort of modeling in the field. Um, I think there are some shots out there of me reaching really high on a ladder to put a book up, something I did like over and over for the shoot. Classic um, library pose. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You're always standing on a kick step, right? Yeah. Um, and then from there, I got my first academic library job at Sarah Lawrence College, which is a small liberal arts college just north of New York City. And that was my first copyright interaction. We had this study room in the library. It was called the Pillow Room, and it was just full of soft pillows for an undergraduate library. I don't recommend it. It just like the whole place had a kind of smell to it that was a little... <laughs> <laughs> unpleasant but we met there for a copyright workshop with Laura Quilter who's a copyright expert in at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and that was my first introduction to copyright as a contested terrain right that like there's no straight law there's just negotiation and risk taking and risk analysis and those kinds of things and so that that I guess was the first time I was like oh I'm not going to get a checkoff list for this mm. but instead we're going to have to think about risk reward balance, you know, which is, I think, really essential to how I think about everything I do. It's like, what's the, what's, what am I risking and what's the potential reward and, and doing that kind of calculation when you're making sort of strategic decisions. So was that one of the first times in your career that you came across that sort of risk uh, reward balance uh, because it, it it runs right through many aspects of librarianship, doesn't it? Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, in my, my, like before I got that library job, I'm like most people, like I got my degree and then it was like, where's the job that I was trained for? <laughs> like I thought everyone was retiring. So I was, you know, marginally employed for a very long time, which, you know, felt like a really long time. It's about six months. But, you know, when you're when you're in it, you don't know if it'll ever end. But my I got a job through an advertisement in The New York Times, like super retro, working as an indexer at the H.W. Wilson Social Science Index. So I was the area studies and political science indexer. And that was my first introduction to here's a set of rules and policies that you have to apply. And also they don't work at all. And then nothing about mm. them is clear as there's clear as mud. Everything is unexpected and you have to negotiate everything. And there's this power implicit in every single decision that you make. So I had area studies, which is politically interesting discipline to sort of think about and the history of it and da 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 But the research that comes out of it is not particularly hospitable to the systems of controlled vocabulary that we used as an indexer. So they give me a list and I have to pick out the four terms that match the article. I was on a quota system, 40 articles a day, you know, and it was, it didn't fit, you know, there would be really richly compelling new ways of thinking about borders, for example. But that wasn't, there wasn't really any like 
controlled vocabulary that would address that. So I guess more than like risk reward, it was like, that was my first introduction to you're going to be told something that is as if it is factual and true and real. And it's only your job to just like be mechanical about it. But once you start doing it, you realize what a fantasy and a fiction that is. And then every single decision that we make in the library is a decision that's about how we're going to allot resources, what kinds of arguments we're going to listen to, right? So everything, it's not a fact, it's an argument, which is not Mm -hmm. like everything's purely relative, but everything is definitely contested. It's really interesting, actually. And the the fact that you mentioned borders there, it it makes me think about traditionally copyright in, in libraries often gets thought about in terms of compliance and about the the let's avoid getting sued so let's get that set of hard and fast rules and let's make sure we can get someone in there who will ensure that everyone complies with those rules but as you say it's a contested space so yes there are policies but as with all the work you do around looking at how cataloging works how we organize information these rules they, they come from a tradition of how we think about knowledge and how we think about information which serves certain people and not others oh exactly you know in the law there are many many places where the law just doesn't apply right and so to me the the only way to think that the law is cut and dried and applied equally and can be complied with like the only way you could think that is if you had never been subject to the law And those of us who have been subject to the law, you've been, you know, you are over-policed or over-incarcerated as, you know, that happens to your community. Or, you know, you've been on strike and the state brings all of its forces to bear upon crushing you. You know, like once you've been up against the law on the, like the, and had it wielded against you, and that's really most of us, although maybe not most of us in libraries, which is another conversation, but it, it becomes difficult to think about law as something of the sort of real thing that needs to be complied with mm-hmm. because especially as you see it not applied to almost you know like Boris Johnson certainly wasn't complying right <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. To, so you know he definitely had a risk reward kind of uh, oh, mentality sure. didn't he yes I hope, I hope it was fun you know <laughs> I hope he had a good time <laughs> that kind of leads us quite nicely into you talked at, at Lilac about critical librarianship about the work you've done around specifically around cataloging and ways of organizing knowledge that are really really tied up with power and who who has the power and who doesn't have the power I mean it'd be interesting to hear a little bit more about how you started dipping your toe into that water was it that first job we were just talking about with the indexing that made you start to think maybe this system doesn't quite work that was definitely the first job where i was like oh what is this system i've been handed and told to Mm. implement and where did these words come from you know and i think those of us who have spent time in libraries working closely with controlled vocabularies how do you not ask who says right like who decided Mm. that these were the words and then i moved to sarah lawrence college and was just put in charge of the hq section because i'm a homosexual right you know like like, they pick the gay as if you like know all this stuff about gay studies which i totally didn't but they put me in charge of the HQs and there was a new book, the autobiography of Christine Jorgensen is the first memoir of a trans woman. And it was, I think the 1950s and it made a big splash and it was a, a great book, but also like at this point is a sort of historical touchstone in transgender studies and reissued version had come out and with a with an introduction by a historian that contextualized it and was brilliant. And I had both of these books that were had been checked out and I had to shelve. And one was 
in the basement downstairs and one was on the third floor. And we had a very slow elevator that was always broken and you had to take the stairs, right? So Mm. it was one of those situations where it was like, this cataloging project is political. Mm. The the first version is in the R's because gender expansiveness is viewed as a psychological problem. In the 2000s, it becomes a social problem, so it's upstairs in the HQs. And that decision was made by people, and it has implications for who can access the book from the pure standpoint of accessibility. Like, can you move easily between these floors? And Sarah Lawrence is a tiny library, and then my brain was like, well, what if I was at Berkeley, which has like you know, miles of libraries, you know, and that's very far away in the vocabulary. So to me, that's like, those are material problems and they're power problems because somebody decided that the books were going to go there and it could be different. And if I want to decide that these books sit together for some reason, then I need to figure out how to have the power to make the decision. So yeah, that's sort of where that thinking came from. Yeah, yeah. But you, you do write about how Clearly, we want to have some kind of order. I mean, that's that's what the profession is all about, is putting knowledge into mm-hmm. some kind of order. And, and you don't, as you've, you've written, you don't just want a big pile of books because that's not really helpful to anyone. But I guess there's a real tension there, isn't there, between interrogating these systems and the ways that that worked and then something that could be seen as coming uh, across as personal preference to say well I want that book to be with that book Mm -hmm. this is how I want them to be done because this Mm -hmm. is my view of the world this is how I see you know these issues so um, how does the, the critical approach address that something which works for the common good at the same time as not overly privileging whoever it is that's in the making those decisions about where things go. I mean, it's a, like for me, an irresolvable paradox. And the reason mm. I've been thinking about it forever and probably will think about it forever because you, you have to have order. You know, I don't see a way out of that, although I'm open to a way of putting a library together without some system. Uh, but I don't think it's really possible. And so who decides, right? And how do we mm. change it if it has been decided in ways that we don't that we don't think are appropriate or that we think systematically exclude some people or some ideas. Uh, So you have to sort of sit inside of that paradox and you're making the world today, right? I'm making decisions today about how my library is going to work today. Like, are we going to have plastic shields up or are we going to take them down? Are we going to have a new scanner in this room or that room? And those are like decisions about the present that are very constrained. But I'm also thinking about making the world we want and the decisions that we make. And so Mm. I think you always have to know that whatever decision you make or choice decision, what word you use is contingent and contextual and is going to change. So I do think there's some level of hubris that I sometimes hear in the field where like, well, we just need to fix it. I'm like, well, it's not fixable because it is a fundamentally a paradoxical sort of thing. So for example, I could say, you know, if we want to talk about copyright, I could imagine a world where there was no private property and we wouldn't need to protect anything. Mm. But I don't live in that world. I don't see it coming. So how do I, how do I behave within the constraints of the present moment and also the future that I want to be making? And I don't know the answer to that. It's a really tough one because the, as you mentioned, the paradox, I mean, we've got an equivalent thing that we always talk about and and, and people who are sort of deep copyright geeks like we are. Well, is it about opening up access to culture and to information or is it about locking it down more so that people can get a return on their investment. Mm. Well, it, it, it's the paradox. It's it's both it's of those. Both, yeah. and, and people have picked me up um, at times where I'm trying to talk about a situation that's a copyright, has a copyright element to it. It's like, well, can we resolve this? And 
someone did say to me, well, you can't you can't resolve this because it's no, not a problem it, that can be fixed. It also sometimes feels a bit like when you can see those two sides of things, it feels then are you sitting on the fence almost as well, I think, mm. in the copyright world of kind of saying, well, yeah, it's this and it's this. And it's this idea of, as you say, it's a, a paradox, isn't it? That, that there can be clearly. I mean, I was thinking about when we talked, I asked you the question, uh, Lila, because I thought I found it interesting that when we looked around at the way people teach about copyright, they don't tend to use critical literacy approaches. They teach it largely as if it's rules. And there's a lot of talk about rules. And is that because that's a way of just helping people make sense of it? So you sort of have to do that? Because if you say, well, there are rules, but you can just ignore them all, you know? I mean, your capacity to ignore a rule is so, you know, there's so much that goes into that. Some people can ignore them and other people can. And so it's not like I could, sitting right here in my office, decide that we're going to use a whole different controlled vocabulary in our library that better reflects our users. Like, I can't do that. Like, you know, people want to burn things down. And I'm often like, well, do you have the kindling and do you have a match? And like, that is what organizing power is. Like, you've got to figure out how to get the kindling together and what's the match. And so how do I teach about systems that to me are obviously systems of power, but I think a lot of people don't see them that way, right? Yeah. The copyright is actually about it's making a public argument about property and profit and whatever else. Mm. I'm not a, I'm not a copyright geek, so you'd have to tell me. But like <laughs> yeah, yeah. the regime is making an argument. And so you need to understand what argument the regime is making and then understand in what moments and in with what capacity do you have to resist that for outcomes that seem better. And so rather than like this is a set of rules and you can ignore them. This is a set of rules. Sometimes you will want to make a decision that runs counter to those rules. Let's yeah. think about what pieces would be in play, what impact, when would we do that? What would it, when would it be worth it? Like, I'm not going to break the rules for no reason. I'm going to break them because there's some alternate outcome that I want to have happen. And that has to mm. be that risk reward thing, right? It has to be like significant and important enough. Like, I'm Absolutely. not going to go all out for not not calling it cookery, but calling it cooking, which is one of the problems back when I was an indexer, and I think they've resolved it in the language, but that's not, I'm not going to go to the map for that. But am I going to go to the map for like illegal aliens as a heading? Yeah. A lot of a lot of American catalogers said yes to that. Mm. Mm. So I guess you've got to pick your battles. Yeah, you have, I think. Yeah. It was just making me think that this idea that when you were talking about the law, that copyright is not the law as in it's not gravity I always say to people yes. you know and and so you know when someone says well that doesn't make sense you know that's that's a ludicrous why would the law say that it's kind of saying well actually copyright are sort of you know structures that have been put in place for particular reasons and understanding what those reasons might be and then being able to question it is is a is a good thing. That that is, in my view, what we should be doing, rather than kind of have people just sort of say, well, five percent you're allowed to do this and you're not allowed to do that, and these are kind of fixed rules, you know, as if it can never be changed. But it's hard, I think, because I think many librarians also like do like order. You know, I, I'm a librarian that has my books not in a particularly well-organised way at all. I try to kind of put them in a vague system, but people are like, oh, you know, because you're a librarian, Jane, don't you have all your books really neatly filed in particular orders? Not really. No. No, no. no. Mine are also thrown in a big jumble, like what came first in my hand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. But it, it makes me think about another thing that I've been navigating. So I've been working as the manager of my library for the last two years and coming yeah. to the end of that right now. But uh, book donations. Like, will mm-hmm. you accept these donations of books? We don't have the staff and we don't have the room. So it's a hard mm-hmm. rule. No. And I very quickly learned that sometimes you have to say yes. It doesn't have anything to do with the books or the donations or the space or anything or what it will add to your collection. But sometimes we have to say yes to things. You know, everything, even like, will I accept these books? is like a political question and it's a question of mm. power. And when you're making a decision about how you're going to act, you know, my question is always, will this build the organization that I'm trying to build? Will it add to the future that I want? Will it enable me to do something? And you're always just making your best guess. But like, I think being aware that you're doing that, right, that the 5% rule, in some cases, you will want to just apply it because like, it doesn't really matter. And it's better to just give a rule to an undergrad. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, other times, like it is, you know, you're going to have to think about it. So we're always like seeking efficiencies because we have so many decisions to make every day, but also being mindful of those moments where it pays to slow down and, and make a different call. Yeah. But it does it does seem as well that it's it you know, copyright has got the real potential, I think, to be a really interesting subject that you can teach even undergraduates about and using approaches from critical pedagogies. And that is what we've tried to do. It is. And we're increasingly doing. And I think the thing for me that's making sense, the more that, I, you know, I think we've been, I've been working with you for a while and we've been increasingly talking about these sorts of techniques. And you're, you've been the one that's been saying it should be critical. What we're doing is critical. Mm. Um, and I think one of the aspects that I'm seeing now is when you talk about copyright, when you say it to someone, it's easy to think of it as an abstract concept, as a, something that doesn't really exist in the real world or exists in the sort of rarefied world of lawyers. Whereas actually what we're talking about when we're having these conversations is how how all these different institutions work, how the whole of society works. In fact, you can't separate the, the concept of how people think about copyright law from the, from, from the questions about how they put, as um, Corey Doctorow was saying, how they put groceries in the fridge and, mm. um, and and how they get access to education and to research. So it's it's impossible to separate it unless your job is simply to to sort of unthinkingly tell them the rules, sh- tell them the rules <laughs> and, and work as a, a as an agent of someone else's power. Yeah, I mean, I always like I think everything I think and believe about the world, I understand to have been produced inside of me by the systems and structures in which I live. So all that's like all of the preconceptions that I bring to things like, you know, everything from buying groceries and putting them in the fridge, like not as a copyright question, but just as like this fact of my life where I go to the store and I have like a different drawer for vegetables and a different drawer for meat. And that's like absurd. Uh, But it is how like the world works. And so all the assumptions I have about the world and how it works, those are ideologically produced in me. So systems of patriarchy and white supremacy and capitalism, all of those things have shaped me to be someone for whom it is automatic that creators have a right to profit off their creations. Right. Mm. Which is like, that's not, that's not natural. That's, ideologically and politically produced yeah absolutely yeah um, but one thing we we do see in the, in the copyright debates or the copyright wars as sometimes they are called is the increasing polarization um, of viewpoints between the industries that profit off mm. the back of this system 
and those that say this isn't actually working and mm. libraries are mm. clearly a very strong voice in that because mm. their mission goes way beyond the beginning of copyright and in fact beyond um, even capitalism yeah um, but organizations like creative commons yes yes yeah, sort of so open rights movement absolutely i mean there's 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 many organizations that are advocating but a very strong powerful lobby um on behalf of the industries that make profits but what what i wondered is to, to what extent does taking a critical approach help take apart some of those narratives or does it in some way actually help does it just increase the level of divide? Because you've typically got the people who would align themselves with critical ways of thinking and thinking about the power structures are more likely to be siding on on the the, the copyright user side, the people that use make use of copyright mm. works and, and 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 advocate for access to culture. Does it help that, or is the polarization thing a sort of separate issue to to criticality more generally? It's interesting. Like I. I I think about, I've worked on this journal uh, called Radical Teacher, and it was, mm. uh, and we we made it an open access journal because it was long story that I won't get into. But one of the things I remember most about that, and it was a socialist, feminist, anti-racist journal of teaching practice. So everybody there was a hardcore Marxist, all of them, you know. <laughs> uh, but when we were talking about going open access, that people were very uncomfortable with the idea that they would not own the rights to their, to the intellectual output of the journal. And so it was like, it wasn't so much that, you know, like people aren't seamless in their political viewpoints. And often when it comes to your own experience, I want everything else to be free, but me, I have to be paid. Right. And so that is like the, I don't think it's as it, it's seamless as all that. And I would yeah. also say that the polarization is, um, that comes from outside of libraries. So I think we often make the mistake of thinking that the issues that we're dealing with inside of the library are resolvable inside of the library when really mm. they are produced well above us. So in the U.S., there are the, you know there are people who profit off of the kind of politicization that we're seeing now around the right to read and the right to read a book about yourself if you're gay or black, right? So there are people for whom that kind of divisiveness is actually generates power for them. And so we're not going to resolve it without paying attention to those larger, broader forces that have put us in this situation. So often, you know, like when I'm feeling quite strident about something, like the question I ask myself is, who or what put me in the position where I am having the reaction that I'm having to this right now? And maybe mm -hmm. it's not the person in front of me, but is it in fact these other systems and structures that have built me this way, you know? So I think yeah, so I, I I think the polarization is not the like it's a it's a just a problem that happens above us, and we need to be thinking more. I think about those broader structures. Maybe you all do in copyright, but I think we do a little less so where I in the part of the library world I live. I, th I think it, it it's something that so it feels uncomfortable, but many things about uh, modern life feel uncomfortable. Does being feel, attached to somebody. Being attached <laughs> to someone by a cable because anyway, um, but the uh, it, it's it's that feeling that you got to pick a side i think mm. that you know you pick your side and and actually we have been talking to some other people in the copyright world who were pointing out well that's not that's not very helpful because actually mm. neither none of those sides are really working in your best interest and, and particularly when we were talking to Corey Doctorow talking about monopolies mm. and and the and the power that monopolization of of, of capitalism it, it brings to certain entities mm -hmm. but 
that you're being offered up these different alternatives of a world between between the monopolies of the old publishing industry and then the monopolies of the new big tech mm. companies. And actually, neither of those viewpoints fit with what most of us in our day-to-day world really want and, and reflect the kind of world we want to see. And when we construct it that way, as like a strong binary of two opposing forces and we have to choose a side, that is a very disorganizing, demobilizing depoliticizing way like it's hopeless like Mm. because if i'm on the side that says these monopolies must stop and those monopolies are super well funded and all the laws support them and they are just consolidating the heck out of whatever like and i can't actually do anything about that as like a person who works at the library like a a student or a writer or an author like i can't do anything about that and so when we construct it as like two opposing sides it just feels very hopeless. And mm. I don't know how people get up in the morning without a sense that they could have an impact on the world in which they live and could shape some of the decisions. While you were talking, it was there's this wonderful film with Judith Butler taking a walk with Sonara Taylor, a disability rights activist. And they just go for a walk in the city and talk about what moving through the city is like. And there's this great little riff on curb cuts. And curb cuts as good for people with mobility issues, but also good for people on bikes or with strollers or, you know, who have difficulties stepping off and on curbs and skateboards and everything. And so looking for places where you could make an impact, where it affects and impacts a whole bunch of people mm. rather than uh, just thinking about things in terms of the right side, right? But instead looking for terrains of struggle and points of resistance and where can we really find common cause. Like, I'm not trying to find common cause maybe with for-profit publishers, but what can I find common cause with people who maybe don't care about copyright, but they do care about profit or they do care about the environmental impact of whatever, whatever. You know, we could figure it out and then find that's where we have to build our coalitions because we, we, those of us working in the library, we're never going to be able to fight back against monopolies because like we need more than just yeah. us. And so yeah. looking for points and sort of things that we can organize around that make people feel like they could actually make a difference in the world because we can, we do all the time. Um, I think is a how I how I try to think about it when yeah. I'm asked to take a side. Yeah, I think you made this point as well at Lilac about feeling like you've got hope, as you say, and you get up in the morning and you can make a difference. But I mean, actually, you've got the potential. You're you know you're president elect of the American Library Association. You, the following year, you're going to be the president. So that is a position where you know you you can make you can make a difference. I, I would I would like to think. I, I mean, think. I wonder, right? Like, I wonder. It's like uh, it's a gamble. My, that's yeah. my my guess as well. But I won't know until I get in there. I'll. Um, but you, you've ri- I think you've written a little bit about some of the, you know, the areas where you want to to work. And uh, we, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the sorts of things that you're hoping to do when you're in office? Sure. I mean, I can I can try. And like I said, you know, you you know, I, I really like the moment will meet me and I got to yes, be ready cool. to meet the moment. So I won't really know until I get in there and I won't really know until I see what 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 else is going on in the association and in the field. But, you know, I think the mo- single most important thing that we could be doing right now, all of us, is developing the skills necessary to organize collectively in response to systematic, relentless attacks on the things that we value as library workers. Mm. Things like mm. 
the commons, like a right to the public space in a city, the right to the city, the um, world that's not just a climate disaster, but in fact has other forms and ways of living, a world that, at least in the United States, like the what I hope are the last gasps of, of white supremacy are sort of really activated right now and super violent, right? Like we need to be organized together to combat those attacks. And I think we can see all of them as sort of library issues to the extent that anything that happens in society happens inside the library. Like people, mm. the public comes in and does stuff and, you know, we have to manage it. And so my focus will definitely be on building advocacy and organizing skills. Like how do I design a campaign? How do I choose a target? What's the curb cut of my library for my library system or for my city? How am I going to pull people together? And there are techniques to that. And, you know, I think we can we can learn them. So things like how mm-hmm. to have an organizing conversation. What's the difference between an organizing conversation and just the kind of chit chat you and I are having right now? How do I test power to see how much I have before I go out on a limb, right? So mm-hmm. You know, I saw I was reading Twitter the other day because like, I'm constantly reading Twitter and someone was like, well, we need a general strike. And I was like, we we do. And it isn't something that we can linguistically produce. We can't just tell everybody to walk out, especially when it's very hard to get people to just like break a little bit bend or something, the little copyright law to make something happen in their office. Right. Like mm. that you're we're asking people who have been up against 40 years of government politics, at least in the U.S., that's made all of us feel that the the only sort of access to political change we have is like buying the right T-shirt, which, you know, I do a lot of buying the right T-shirt. And that's not unimportant, but but embedding that in a broader sort of sense of what a political campaign could be uh, mm. for the kind of world that we want. I think that's something that I care about a lot. And I think that inside of ALA, there will be resources and time and people who are going to be interested in that. And so finding a way for us to work together to sort of skill up um, and to rethink what it is we have the capacity to do, because I do believe we are world makers as library workers. You know, we, everybody from the person who unlocks the door in the morning to the person who cleans uh, the bookshelves and keeps them dust free. If you're lucky enough to work in a library that's resourced in that way, those of us who do resource description, who do the public service work, reference librarian, instruction librarian, to the guy who turns off the lights and locks the door at night, like every single one of those people is working on behalf of the public, working on behalf of the public good, expanding access to space and to light and heat and bathrooms for people who live in our cities and towns. And so I see that as super crucial, but it doesn't like we have to begin to see it as a world making project so that we can ramp it up and do more with it. But that's like how I'm feeling about it today. I could mm. find when I get in there that there will be a, another kind of library issue that comes crashing down. Uh, but I do believe that the skills of organizing are essential in every kind of moment. And if we have those, we'll be ready to, to meet the conflict when it when it comes. Thank you. Um, and mm. I, I know that you have in, in this part of your campaign, you spoke to Library Futures, the mm-hmm. recently yeah. created body that's looking at, at, at copyright reform and one of its key things that is actually relating to those issues that you spoke about. So are you planning on having the copyright discussion as part of what you're doing? Are you going to be working with Library Futures on advocating for any of those library copyright questions? I mean, I think, you know, at least for academic librarians, you can't talk about the future of the library without talking about copyright, without talking about the digital commons. And, you know, those are conversations we're absolutely going to be having. I don't know what form they'll take at this point, but um, they're crucial to the future. So they're crucial to me.
are starting out and in our time of need. Their wisdom, grace and eloquence inspires us to succeed. They're the people who we work with, who brighten up our day and validate our pedantry and send us on our way. They are copyright heroes. So, copyright heroes or heroes, people who might have inspired you in the work you do. Would you like to, yeah? Sure, yeah. So, like name check. World makers. Uh, Dean Spade is one of my heroes, a transgender rights activist, and he founded the Sylvia Rivera Law Project here in New York City, uh, which is a law project for working class people of color, uh, low income, gender expansive people. And it's an example of an organization that was built by and for the people that it serves and is an example, I think, of creating in the present, on the ground, the world that we want in the future. Other people who do that every day, Miriam Kaba is an abolitionist whose work inspires me every day. Uh, she's got a project called, the, I think it's the Million Things podcast, where this question of what am I going to do? How do I, how do I survive? And how do I help my neighbors? And how do I do anything in a world that feels so bleak sometimes and argues that it will take a million things. So you just got to try, throw something against the wall, see what works. Uh, and Miriam does that every day. So those are two of my heroes. Ruthie Gilmore is a prison abolitionist whose theories about the state and theories about power shape how I think about everything that I do in my world. So those are three of my heroes. And then I try to meet one every day. <laughs> you know, I think everybody <laughs> has something to teach us. So. Mm. Mm. I, thanks for that. I, I'm, I'm thinking back to when you were talking at, at Lilac, actually, your, your keynote, talking about, it's not quite a topic of copyright, but about prisons and about thinking about the future and how what the future might look like. And, and that we do just assume that it is natural to lock people up. Mm. And um, it clearly doesn't work very well, does mm. it? It's just it's just horrific and one of the things the great shames of our time that I, I think we'll look back and think that was you know, I'm I'm hopeful that my child will be able to have a child who will be able to have a child who will look back at this time in history as, mm. as uh truly horrific. Yeah, just like in New York City, I'm giving a talk in a couple of weeks at this newly remodeled, really beautiful circulating library here in Midtown Manhattan. The city invested, I think, a hundred and twenty-five million dollars into that re design and it's gorgeous and beautiful and around the same time that it opened the city issued its first contracts for the new city jails program in the city which is the budget for that is 8.3 billion dollars with a B billion and so wow. we you know and like we have to take that really seriously and that's you know like where is the state investing its funds it's invented investing those funds in caging people rather than in liberating them and giving them the right to read and the right to sit down inside of clean and well-lit space and that's unconscionable and it has to be it has to be different that's got to be our priority wow when you put it like that as well that's it's really something to think about isn't it yeah, yeah. i don't want to end on a downer though no 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 no, no we're definitely not going to end on a downer no. no 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 we do often ask people whether they've got any kind of nerdy facts about copyright they'd like to share no have you got nerdy facts about libraries so you must have a nerdy a fact 
here's a nerdy fact that I was taught in library school, but I don't know if it's true. <laughs> so maybe I'll share that and listen. Yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds good. So I, I took a class about special collections and the instructor told us that one of the problems with books made of goat skin is that the skin of the goat always returns to the goat so that you can take a piece of skin from a part of the goat and flatten it out and print a book on it. But over time, it will always morph, it will curve back or it will begin to take the shape of a foot. So like that can't be true, but what if it's true? And it sort of obviously has stuck with me for more than 20 years. Yeah. Does the skin of the goat always go back to the goat? That's my question. That's a crazy, well, we'll have to see what people think of that. We can yeah. do some research. We the the same thing doesn't apply to uh, paper and turning into the form of a tree, does it? I don't think so. <laughs> Probably but not. You leave a library long enough, it'll turn into a forest. Maybe. The same teacher told us that the paper of the book is always a little bit on fire because of the way that acid works. And so the books a are a little constant. bit on fire. Now that I'm talking about it, I think maybe this, this sounds, this sounds, this sounds, this like sounds like like quite a weird and, class you were in. Yeah, it sounds like maybe he was a little bit high when he was teaching. But uh, yeah. that could also be the fact. I don't know. I, the thing is, I have on that last point about the paper being maybe on fire. Hmm. I, I've been reading up on on quantum physics recently, trying to get my head back. Sure. And, Just and, he's got a bit of spare time. And, 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 a little and, bit of quantum physics. And, yeah. and the the way that the world really works is incredibly strange. I mean, the, the nature of reality is not what you think it is. So I think there maybe there is a possibility that all the books are actually on fire. Yeah. But. But, but it's not for me to say. <laughs> no, not no, at this point. No. Not without having done some research. No, no, no. no the cat has now the joined us as well. Us, so so the, the, it was <laughs> when you mentioned a goat, she just appeared just like that. Actually. I don't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> call for animals. Oh, <laughs> the, the very last question we always have is: yes. Do you have a favourite type of cake, Emily? We we always think that you can't have copyright without a, mm. some kind of sweet treat. If it, what would be your? I mean, coming. Do, well, I'm assuming you you're you're living in New York, coming mm. from the City University of New York. You got a good great. Is it a cheesecake? It's not a cheesecake. It's not a no. cheesecake. It's, it's gonna. I'm gonna be very honest. So I grew up in Boise, Idaho, and every and I have a twin sister. So potatoes. Every it's a, not a potato cake, <laughs> but every year it, we just didn't have a whole lot of great desserts out in Boise. Mm. Um, I hope That's that no one from Idaho is listening to this who's going to rant at me that we have great desserts. But we didn't have a lot of great desserts. But every year on our birthday, my mom would get my sister and I a twin birthday, like, sheet cake from the grocery store. Like, high sugar content, white, white, white cake, and the, like, super sugary frosting. And because there were two of us and we were competitive, many, many of those big flowers on the cake frosting <laughs> flowers so i like it when it's gaudy and over the top like that and nice sort of garden. i'd love to see a picture of this cake these or these cakes these sound amazing they do yeah it's a large flat cake like a yeah the flowers it, it's just the amount of sugar yeah i love yeah, that that feeling you get where yeah yeah yeah, well, yeah. Your, teeth, your teeth hurt a little bit yeah yes I do feel disappointed that we haven't been able to meet you in person because we take cake along when we meet people in person as well. Yeah. Next time. Next time, yeah. Thank you, yeah. Emily. Thanks for giving up your time. It's been Absolutely. really great Thank chat you. to you. So that was Emily Drabinsky. Yeah, that was great, wasn't it? It was a brilliant conversation. So thanks so much again to Emily for taking the time to speak to us. Absolutely. And we wish her all the best. She's got a, a big task on her hands, mm -hmm. ALA president from June. So really exciting times for her. 
Yes. Exciting times also for libraries. Um, challenging times. Challenging times, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Um, so we're looking forward to the Lilac Conference next week. By the we time are. This, this goes out, we shall be returning to the place where we first met Emily. We will, and we'll be in Cambridge for the week. So really looking forward to spending some time there. Yeah, mm-hmm. but in the meantime, we'll catch up with the Waffle Easters soon. Okay then, ta-ta for now. Bye. It's not legal advice, but it will have to suffice because.